21, verse 23. Today's the 21st, so that's where we go today. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Wow, that's a good one. That's a really good one for me. Um, you know, I, I believe that the church needs to be two primary things. I believe that the church needs to be a hospital where people who are hurt and wounded can find their way in and get help and get their vitamin K injection. And is there such a thing as vitamin K? And, and <laughs> oh, good. I didn't say something really stupid. Um, you know, where we can kind of get our broken heart and our broken bones mended up and helped, helped out. The church also needs to be a barracks. It needs to be a place where we do PT and where we run in the obstacle course and we prepare ourselves to go out and to aggressively extend the kingdom. And so the messages that, that, um, that you'll hear from time to time can go on both of them, both directions at once, or maybe they'll, they'll lean one way more than the other. Our last series that we just ended a couple weeks ago about how to stay in love was really more of a hospital kind of a deal. Not that we're all sick, uh, you know, but it's about building us up. This, this, uh, this series that I started last week and today is really more of a barracks kind of a topic. This is about us being the church, what the Holy Spirit had in mind as the church was actually originally birthed. And so I'm telling you that because I think it's healthy for you. If you come to church today and your heart's broken and you're just glad to be in the house of the Lord and, you know, maybe night times are hard for you because your heart's breaking about something, you know, when you're alone, it's hard at night or anytime. But you come to church because you're awake and for an hour you just feel peace. Sometimes when you're in that kind of a place, getting yourself engaged in some sort of territory taking with the partnership of God is the very healing that you need. And so um, I I believe that um, although this may not be as soft and tender necessarily as some messages might be, it's every bit as healthy for us. And that's just wanted to to tell you a little bit, if you're wondering my philosophy, how do I pick my messages and where we're going? And so those two things are always swirling in my mind, the hospital and the barracks. So anyway, okay. If you're just an average, if if you're an average American person, you know, um, in terms of your awareness of history, you can probably only name two people who were crucified by the Romans around the first century. We know Jesus, obviously, is one. Can anybody name another one? Okay, Peter, but... Okay, you're not average. You guys are way above average. Okay, so um, there's a secular name that you might have heard. Wow, nobody's ever here has ever heard of Spartacus? Oh yeah, well we knew we knew Spartacus Terry. You just didn't, yeah. So so most the average Americans can name two people: Jesus, because you know we fuss over the name of Jesus. We have Easter and Spartacus because there was this big, huge motion picture in the '60s. Spartacus, right? Okay. Okay. Play if you don't. If you didn't know he was crucified, play along with me at least, because then I, this doesn't work if you don't know he didn't. Get, he got crucified. Okay. So. So he was Spartacus was a, he was a, a, a gladiator. He was a slave. And he led this huge slave rebellion. And, um, and Rome, it scared Rome. It scared Rome a little bit because he, um, <laughs> because he had the possibility of stirring up this army of slaves. It scared Rome a little bit. They, they thought, okay, there is a certain number of us Roman people, but there was, a, there was actually millions of slaves across the Roman Empire. And if the slaves ever all got together... 
they could have turned the government upside down. So it kind of scared them a little bit. And uh, Rome, Rome uh, um, ruled with an iron grip. They ruled by force and intimidation, and their, their execution of their will was swift and severe. And so, um, so they saw this, and it scared them a little bit, so they went after him. And, and although you can't really learn history too much from watching Hollywood movies, there's a little bit of history in there. And you'll know the story that uh, eventually um, Spartacus and his army, which was an army, there was quite a lot of guys, got cornered, and there was one big, huge battle, and um, they lose. And what did Rome do was they crucified not only Spartacus, but his entire army. And they crucified them along the highway. And they stretched out for miles and miles and miles all of these crucified people along the highway. They were trying to make, Rome was trying to make a statement there. They were trying to make a statement. And, and, and there were Roman historians that uh, told the story, but they're making a statement there. And the statement basically, basically is this. Don't mess with Rome. Okay, message pretty, pretty loudly proclaimed. All this rows of, you know, you can't go down the highway and all these guys. Imagine driving up I-5. You would get the message, right? I mean, we get one billboard and it makes a little bit of a splash, right? But there's like all these, all along the highway, all these soldiers who had, um, had been with Spartacus. The historians spread this story. They told the fact that all of these bodies were hanging on these crosses along the road because they were trying to, um, to make the point across the entire Roman world. Very, very, very understandable. That's, you know, that, with that truth, in spite of Hollywood and its movie, it's, it's not, you know, it makes sense why we would still know the name Spartacus. Why, why, we, why would there have even been a movie made? It makes sense because those historians made it. They had a PR campaign. It was all out and it was pretty effective. A couple thousand years later, we still know about it. But ask you this question. Why do we know about Jesus being crucified? I mean, why does the world even remember him? He's just this Jewish carpenter from Judea, was kind of like the armpit of the Roman Empire. In, if you were a Roman soldier, the last place you wanted to be assigned was Judea. Nobody wanted to live there. There was nothing going on there. It was just, like I said, the armpit. Can I say armpit in church? Because you all brought two of them with you. So anyway, so it, nobody wanted to go there. Here's this Jewish carpenter. He didn't, you know, he led 12 people or so. I mean, he, a handful. Spartacus, thousands. Gladiators, big battles. We remember him. Why Jesus and 12? Why? There's uh, got to be some reasons. Yet, you and I have four complete accounts of Jesus' life. In fact, there is more information available today to know about Jesus than there was about any of the Roman emperors. This Jewish carpenter. And um, so th- that's a great question. Why do we even know about Jesus? Why, why does the world even know of his existence? Why does the world know his story? I think it's a great, great question. And um, if you're a historian, there are several different ways that people try to answer that question. How do you know about things? Um, and so I'm going to go over a couple of the reasons, a couple of the ways that people would investigate them, competing ways for why we'd know so much about Jesus. Number first way is that historians, there are historians out there who actually look for natural causes. So they, they, dis, they study the topic. Okay, what is it that caused this, a, a, if, if, if A, then B, what is it actually that happened here? Okay. Um, in the case of Spartacus, you've got 
all these historians, they wrote of all this story, they got the word spread out, you lined up all these dead bodies on these crosses, on this highway, you make, that's like one huge PR campaign. That is, is, it sends the word out, it's a story that, that has legs to it, okay, it makes perfect sense, cause and effect. Yet, here's this Jewish carpenter, and today, a third of the world's population one-third of the world's population somehow believes that a guy named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago is somehow connected to God. A third of the world's population. That's a couple billion people. Probably way more than Spartacus. Go, Jesus. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> so how did all that happen? And what, what is it? Um, you know, and there are lots and lots of books out there where his secular historians have studied this out and come up with this proposal or that proposal saying, well, this happened and then that happened and so here's what was going on and, and uh, you, can look, you, you can look at it and read it and you can see where they're trying to go with it. And I've looked at them. I've read a lot of them. I, I've made it a little bit of a hobby. And, but when you read their explanations, it just doesn't hold water. It's like, you know, there has to be, for a natural cause, for the explanation of a natural cause to be plausible, there has to be a, a, some sort of a, res, a response that's commensurate with the cause. You know, here's what I mean by that. I mean, y- y- the cause and effect have to make sense with each other. So, so here's an example. of um, This is absurd, okay? Get in your car after church today and drive on down highway down here, go down to Ocean Shores, get yourself a book of matches. There's a store down there somewhere if you don't have one. Walk out on the beach till your toes are hitting the water, light a match, and throw it in the Pacific Ocean. If the entire Pacific Ocean immediately catches on fire, okay, so you now have a cause and effect situation. You could say that you lit the Pacific Ocean on fire and it was the natural cause from throwing a, a match into it. <laughs> okay, I mean, I mean, that would be a scenario where you'd say, um, hold on a, mac- a, a, a minute, um, there's something else at work here besides that match because I would never have guessed that a match had that kind of, kind of propulsion capability. It, would, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. So you'd say, what was the natural cause? So we look backwards in time. Lots of people were crucified. The Romans made it into an art form. I mean, they learned how to torture and kill people to make their point. Lots of people were crucified. Jesus was one of them. Lots of people over the millennia have somehow threatened the local political power of their day. Threatened, made them feel like they were going to lose control. That's happened lots of times and lots of places. Yet today, a third, a third of the world's population uh, believes Jesus is connected to God. You know, Spartacus led a slave rebellion. And so there was this huge, a massive PR campaign and so we know about him, but a Jewish carpenter and a third of the world's population. There's not a natural cause there that if you look at it, you go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. There isn't one. This movement should have died a quiet death a couple thousand years ago. What's the reason? What's the natural cause? What's, what's going on there? And the answer that I would submit to you is that there is no natural cause or supernatural cause I, I i'm I, you know thanks for the rabbit trail honey that was not a real rabbit trail watch and see how rabbit trails are really done okay <laughs> you know cause and effect i have a real pet peeve this might more f- feel feel to you more like a a, um, a rant than a rabbit trail but um i have a pet peeve about 
the Big Bang. And, um, you know, it's, it's physicists, it's their best current explanation for how everything exists minus God. I mean, that's, that's the purpose of it, really. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a physics class here, but basically the Big Bang Theory says that everything came from nothing. Just popped into being, and you can get there mathematically. The problem is you have to add some things to your equation to make it stay in balance. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting if you follow these things, and I do a little bit. I, it's a little bit of a crazy hobby. Um, you follow these things, and the computations say, yeah, okay, it could have happened that way as long as, 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 long as all these qualifications, including the, some problems that they have. For example, there's not enough matter in the universe for everything to stay together. The gravitation, there's not enough matter for it, the whole universe to stay together. In fact, it's short by about 90%. They don't tell you that. That's not part of the deal. But about by 90%, 89, 92, it depends on the equation. It, we don't have enough mass. So, consequently, if all of the rest of the laws of particle physics and quantum mechanics are correct, everything should be flying apart. Yet it still holds together. 90%. So what do we do? Well, okay, Big Bang must be correct. So there's something out there. We'll, we can't see it, we can't detect it, we can't measure it, but our math says it's there. So we'll call it dark matter. Or we'll call it mysterious dark matter. And I'm thinking, okay, um, all right. But then you throw the dark matter into the equation to fix your 90% problem. You're only off by 90%, right? Um, and now when you add the dark matter, you have some other problems that, that you can only fix by adding dark energy. Um, and it, goes, it gets snowballs. The more th- ways you patch the, th- the theory, the more requirements of things you have to make up to make it stay in balance. And it all holds together based upon all of these things that are made up. Here's a couple of scriptures that, um, that uh, I think speak to this. Job 9, um, verses 8 through 10. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear. The bear is uh, Ursa Major. It's the, great, it's the big dipper and a little bit of the, the small dipper, the bear. He made Orion which is, you see that in the summertime. If you've, if you've seen it before, you recognize it. There's a belt, and it's pretty cool. And it changes, anyway. So, um, and, then, and, and the Pleiades, the Pleiades is a star cluster. There's a whole lot of stars in the star cluster. There are nine of them that are the brightest stars. For some reason, it's also known as the Seven Sisters. Can't figure that out. And if you have a Subaru, you have this star cluster in your car's logo. Okay. <laughs> So the Japanese call, call it Subaru, which means that as you're driving down the road and you see a Subaru, look at that label and remember, God made those. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail within a rabbit trail, which is a true art form. Okay. Okay, in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and get this, and he holds all creation together. That's not some simplistic, oh, I can't figure things out, so I'll just make up an explanation. You know, as science, if science would be truly objective, science verifies this. It verifies this. That's why I love science, because I really believe when you look at it objectively, it verifies the Word of God. It doesn't, doesn't do anything else. Anyway, someday I'm going to do a sermon 
And that sermon's going to be believing God created you without leaving your intellect at the door. That's coming. At some point, that's going to be a one, one weekend sermon. So what were the natural causes that explains Jesus? You know, so when you look at all of the secular explanations, it just doesn't get there. That's why, you know, the question is, why did Jesus' teaching survive the first century? You know, come on. Jesus' teachings survived Rome. Rome, the Roman Empire is gone. The teachings of Jesus, they endure. They've gotten bigger and stronger. Why? Okay, so we said secular historians look for natural causes. Here's a second uh, why, reason why. Because there were eyewitnesses. There was this guy named Luke. He wrote some of the books of the Bible, and uh, he did a bunch of interviews and talked to a bunch of people and took some accounts, and, and he wrote them down. And we know the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, that was written by Luke. The church started as a movement. It was actually started by a group of people who actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They actually believed it because they were in the city where he actually rose from the dead. They saw him after he'd been executed and after he'd been entombed. There were hundreds of people that saw Jesus. They saw him. They were in the city where he was crucified, in the actual city. This was not, hey, over in Seattle. This was right there in Rochester. I mean, right down the street. They lived there. This was not a story to them. This was, this was life. This is what they were experiencing. And uh, after about two months after his resurrection, he, he went off in the ascension. And they, they looked at each other and said, did you see what I saw? I mean, we actually saw what we saw. We can't deny it. There were about 120 eyewitnesses um, that that went off into the streets and they started pro- proclaiming this truth and saying to people, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God. They'd seen all these miracles. You know, some of them had seen, you know, blind people see. People had been lowered down through roofs and made whole. There were, there were lepers that had been made clean. I mean, all of these things. They, these people watched this. These were miraculous events, and they were not secrets. I mean, this was, there was a buzz going on. These people watched all this. It happened right there in front of them. Right there in front of them. And it, and it didn't happen, you know, two months ago, two, two years ago. It didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away. It was right where they stood. It'd be like us saying, hey, right, right over here at the intersection, Jesus is walking like 10 minutes ago. I get excited on the way to church when I see a deer. It's just me. So I mean, hey, cool, there's a deer, you know. <laughs> Jesus, a guy rose from the dead, and he's right, he was just there. Amazing. And what happened? That, all of those events, those miraculous things, was central to the movement of Jesus. They, they, they had the, when the church launched, they had a very simple, simple mission as a church. People, two things, that people would know Jesus had risen from the dead and that they, those people would embrace the teachings of the Lord. And as it started, the church just went out, and it was completely outward focused. It was to get out there to the people who didn't know this good news, this exciting thing. I was thinking uh, during worship, I wouldn't want to be here if Jesus wasn't res- resurrected. It'd be, just be a waste of our Sunday morning. It's nice outside. I mean, we could be doing stuff out there. But Jesus was resurrected. If he truly was resurrected... That means death is just this transition phase. It's not the end. In fact, it's a good transition phase. And if if, if that was true, if he truly had power over the grave, then all that other stuff he said, bound to be true. All those things, all those hope-filled things, all those promises, all those things about your tomorrows, 
You know, I, I, I was thinking, I said to Lisa, um, hey, before you dismiss the kids, I want to say something to them today. And then I changed my mind because I got to get my act together on that topic. But I wanna, I wa- we have to look to our kids in the eyes and say, Jesus rose from the grave. <laughs> our kids need to know. I mean, I know they're being told this, but they need to know he died and then he just got back up <laughs> because he's who he said he was. He loves you and me. He's God. It's amazing. And our kids need to hear that message. So they were totally outward focused. But then over time, some stuff started happening. The church started to get some buildings and get organized and people began to see control and the church began to, be, to turn inward a little bit. We talked about that last week. And, it's, and, and churches have the ability to make the transition from being outward focused to inward focused really, really fast. It can happen really fast. Um, you know, and... There's this gravitational pull. I mean, it's almost like gravity. It just, every, it's the natural thing, churches. The gravitational pull is to pull them back to being inward. It's just the natural course of things. It happens really fast. I'm, I'm, I heard this story about a guy named Charles Stanley. You might have heard of him. He's a Baptist preacher. Very, very famous guy. And uh, in fact, I think for a couple of years, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, started a TV show, I mean, he's been on a TV preacher for 35 years, mega church, lots of influence around the world. Okay, Charles Stanley. He had a friend who lived in another city, and he was going to visit him, and he was going to um, visit his friend's church. It was a smaller, smaller church, and um, I suppose everything just Charles Stanley is a smaller church, but he didn't call the guy before he went and, and uh, let him, hey, I'm coming. He just shows up, and the ushers didn't recognize Charles Stanley, and... Um, by the way, Charles Stanley's still living. I mean, d- this is not a story in the past. Um, this is recent. Didn't recognize him, so they brought him in, and they seated him in the back pew on the aisle. So there's like 60 rows of pews. Pretty, pretty big church, but um, the, all of the rest of the people who came sat in the first about 20 or so rows of, of the pews. <laughs> and way in the back, there's this big sea of empty wooden rows, you know, and then Charles Stanley in the back corner. And the preacher gets up and preaches, and nobody says a word to Charles Stanley. The guy that he's visiting there doesn't realize that he's there. He's sitting up in front somewhere with his family. And the preacher preaches, and then out comes the communion elements, and they serve communion first row, serve the second row, serve the third row, the 14th, the 15th, 18th, 19th, 20th. Turn around, take the communion elements back to the front, serve the leaders. They go through communion. Nobody comes back against Charles Stanley in the elements. And the um, uh, preacher finishes the message, dismisses them all. Friend stands up, notices Charles standing in the back. He comes back to me. He says, oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize you were here. And, um, yeah, and Charles Stanley, you know, he tells the story. He says, well, what was that all about? And he says, well, on communion Sunday, when someone comes in that we don't know, we sit them in the back because we don't want them to accidentally receive communion with us because they're not members here. <laughs> it's like, well, excuse me, I didn't realize your church owned communion. Okay, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Charles Stanley didn't say that, but I'm cynical, and that's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, some of you um, might have a really harder story than that. I mean, some of you may have experienced something where a church inadvertently or maybe outwardly hurt you. You know, maybe growing up, your parents, you know, you've been in the church the whole time, and your parents got divorced. 
and um, that's never easy, and people in the church take sides, and, and uh, pretty soon, because of the stigma attached, both sides felt like they couldn't be in the church, and so they left the church, and, you know, there's this inward thing that kind of fuels that. It's not intentional, but there's this air about that, or uh, maybe... Maybe you were in a church at some point that's had a church split. That's, that's no fun. You know, Jesus came and hung on a cross and died to give birth to a bride. And uh, church splits are just so hurt, hurtful to what Jesus was doing to give birth to his bride. You know, anyway, maybe you've been in a church where there was a church split and, you know, this leader and that leader were at each other's throat and... They were saying things and up, you know, spiraled and, and pretty soon they were running the pastor out of the place and all this stuff going on. And maybe your family looked at that and said, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want anything to do with this. I got secular friends who are nicer to each other than these people. Why do I want to waste my time on this, okay? I mean, maybe you've been through something that has absolutely broken your heart and, and bled you dry for hope. Um, because of an inward environment in a church. That's not ever supposed to be what the rallying point of the church is. You know, our rallying point isn't how you take communion. It's not, you know, do you know the songs? It's not, do you wear the correct clothes? It's not any of those things. The rallying point is that Jesus is the risen Son of God. That's it. That's the rallying point. Rallying point is a military term. After we go out and make trouble for the enemy, we gather together. That's the rallying point. Jesus is the risen Son of God. That's it. That's it. And if you're here and you don't believe that, it's fine. It's no problem with us. You know, you're not our enemy. (laughs) someone who doesn't understand the rallying point is not our enemy. There was a point where every one of you didn't understand and get it yet. You weren't the church's enemy. You were yet to be born again, you know? And um, we're not against you. And, and, um, you know, in fact, I would even go further than that. If someone is in our church and um, while you're making up your mind about God and all these kinds of things, what can we do to, her, to serve you, to help you sort this out? That's really our heart because we've discovered something pretty exciting. <laughs> we have, and it's living in our hearts. And uh, we want to share it with you too. I mean, that's, that, by the way, was the heart and the mentality of the first century church. You know, churches just get inward so fast and you know, they move from outside-oriented to inside-oriented. And it can, it can be even creepy. And if you have been hurt at any point because the church was inward when it should have been outward focused, please, please accept this apology from whatever position I can give to you. And and I apologize to you for the way the church has hurt you. And if this church family has been that, I apologize for that too. It's... It's never been the intent or the heart of any leader here, ever. I mean, I've known the people who have led here going back from when it was first planted. And human beings make mistakes, and 
we get involved in stuff that, you know, takes on a life of its own sometimes. That's never been anybody's heart here. The people here love God and they care about you. If you've been hurt by this church or by the church, accept an apology from a pastor who wants you to know the heart of Jesus. He loves you. (laughs) He loves you. Anyway, that's why the church expanded so quickly in the first century. That's why it took off. That's why the, 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 the word about the resurrection had legs and has lived because it was God's huge, big idea, and it's a very simple one. Now, I want to say about this church, Crossroads Church, we're not immune from this turn to becoming inward. I'm not saying we're there. I don't feel that we are. But we're, we're certainly not immune from the gravity that wants to pull us there. And uh, that's partly why 9-11 is a big deal to me. We have to have times when we push ourselves to focus on something other than ourselves. And uh, I don't mean to be a pushy guy. I just, I just think it's healthy and it's right for us. Um, one of the ways that you'll know whether a church is still on mission with regard to this, and, uh, and that is one of the ways is, is to listen to how the church prays. How a church prays its leaders and its people will tell you whether, the, whether it's straight a little bit. You know, the very first prayer that this first group of people prayed was an amazing prayer. And we're going to take a look at it in a minute or two. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. But, you know, I want to talk before I get there about, <laughs> um, about us American Christians because we have a blessed life here and we have a tendency to pray in certain ways. You know, I mean, it's, I mean and I pray this way, so I'm going to make fun of some of the prayers that I know I've heard coming out of my mouth or people around me, <laughs> my poor family or my friends or anybody else I've heard. I'm going to make some fun of some of that stuff because I know you pray these prayers too, okay? So I'll just pick on some of these. It's like, you know, some of the prayers we pray are about things that are already going to work out okay anyway, okay, or that God already has them under control or, you know, or others. And I'm, here we go. So, for example, here's one. Lord, please give us a safe trip. It's like, okay. <laughs> I pray that, and I'm going to keep praying that, by the way. Don't stop praying these things, but it's like, there's another approach to it, and that would be put on your seatbelt and drive the speed limit, Terry. I mean, it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's not a 100% guarantee, and it certainly doesn't supersede the superintending covering power of God. But come on, that's, God's going, oh, I have to give you a safe trip? Well, everybody, I need some rest here because this is going to really push me to my limit. <laughs> you know, okay, give us a safe trip. Um, here's another one. Help me get an A on my test, Lord. <laughs> it's like, you could study the material and actually learn it. You know, that's so cynical. Isn't it slap me for that? <laughs> um, you know, after all, let's face it, atheists get A's on tests too, right? They just study. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you become an atheist and study to get an A on a test. I'm just su- suggesting, okay. Here's another one. Um, I hear something like this. Um, Lord, I pray that I wouldn't get frustrated and yell at my kids or kick my dog or whatever. And I hear those kinds of prayers, and what I hear is the heart behind it. God, I, I, I'm, I, I'm struggling with something, and I need some heavenly help. And I, Terry, this is Terry speaking, I, I listen to those prayers, and I think, okay, something in that request is God's responsibility, and something in that request is Terry's responsibility, right? There's a division of responsibilities and labors here. Some of it's supernatural intervention. Some of it's just Terry grow up kind of stuff. Um, here's another one. Lord, clear up my skin before this weekend so I look good in my dress. <laughs> I don't look that good in a dress anyway, so I don't pray that prayer. 
Here's another one. Lord, thank you for this day. And I'm thinking, that's good for Christians to have gratitude. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying stop praying these things, but how, do you t- how many times do you think so far God's been thanked for today? Lots of them. He has today under control. I promise you this. God has today under control. And gratitude is good. But listen, if these are all of the prayers that we pray, if, these are the, if this is the list, there's something in common about all these um, prayers. And, and that's, they're all about us. They're all about me. You know, I, I know, I really believe God's up there saying, come on, give me something harder. Come on. Like anything's any, any harder. I know, but God's saying, come on, there's something in you. We're going to do something as soon as you get on board with me on this. Come on, Terry. We should be praying those things. Keep doing it. I'm, I'm not telling you to not pray those things because as soon as I leave here, I'm going to keep praying that, those things. I have to. It's just my level of maturity. But there's something else too. There's something else too. Ben Franklin... Um, is credited, and I'm not sure if he said this or not, but he made the statement, he said, once people learn, this sounds political, but there's a spiritual connection, okay? He says, once people learn that they can vote themselves personal financial gain, their society will begin to unravel itself. I'm paraphrasing. Once people figure out that they can vote themselves personal financial gain, their, their democracy or their society is, is going to start unraveling. I don't know if that's true or not. It's been true pretty much of all societies in the past um, from a political standpoint. Because once an attitude of entitlement takes over, focus starts to turn inward. It's just the gravity of human nature. It's just true. So the spiritual equivalence is this. We all have figured out the theology that God loves us and cares for us and he will provide for us and look after us. We've got that part figured out. So gravity wants to get us to, to pray those, you know, self-centered, you know, get, your, get, get those things taken care of. And yet, if you take a lot of Christian prayers that pray those kinds of prayers and put them together, you find that the, the prayers become inward and then we all become church people and we all do to go to the church building and we do church things and pretty soon everything's about the inward church. It's just not healthy. And I, I know this. I, I believe, because I'm getting to know some of you, I've been here not quite a year now, but I'm, I'm getting to know that the, the temperature of this place and the heart of this group of people is that you want to be a part of something that's bigger than yourselves. And I, I know that's true about you. You want to be, you want to be something. Some big Christians who want to be uh, part of something bigger than them need to pray big prayers. So I want to challenge today a little bit the way you pray. I want to overcome a little bit of that natural pull that's inward. And uh, so anyway, if we were we were talking about um, American prayers. Let's uh, head towards the word here. Peter prayed this amazing prayer, uh, and here's the background story. There were about 3,000 people that got saved after that first sermon. It was the opening day of the church. Big, huge launch, 3,000 people. A few days later, Peter and John are making their way into the temple. And the temple was kind of like the epicenter of Jewish life. It was, it was headquarters there. Except now these two guys are Christians. So when they walk into the temple, the, there's this, this dynamic tension, this spiritual tension that's present. 
And also just to understand something, Peter, who made a lot of mistakes that we get to enjoy his mistakes in the word of God, he kind of has risen at this point. Now he's kind of the main lead guy among all this. So he's kind of the head guy or the lead guy. And so they're heading into there and... Um, I made note of this. Proverbs 21 says, if you instruct the wise, they will be all the wiser. That's Peter. He made a lot of mistakes. We see them in the word of God, but he came wiser and wiser. Now he's leading. So, so anyway, Peter and John, they're on their way and they see this, this man who's a lame man. He's a beggar. Um, lame, is, you know, lame means something different now. It, 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 you know, lame, you know, your kids can say, well, I've got an English teacher and he's lame. You, you might say, well, he doesn't walk. And you'll say, no, I mean, that's not what it means. <laughs> no, kids, too, you know, lame. This guy actually couldn't walk. And he's been sitting on the way to the temple for his whole life. And they walk up to him and he holds out his hands and they say, hey, listen, we don't have any mo- money, but we got something better than that. And they pray for him and up he goes and he walks. A miracle. So he's on his way in. And um, so he follows them into the temple. This lame man follows them in. Now, this is creating a bit of a buzz because here's Peter and John. There's already some controversy. There's thousands of people that are getting saved in the city. Things are already upside down. Now, here comes, here they come again. And here's this guy that's been sitting out in front of the temple all this time, and he's lame his whole life. He's following them in. Leaders are going, oh, man, buzz going on. And um, they're gathering around, all these people gathering around, and Peter, who can't help himself, he sees a crowd gather. He can't help himself. He's got to start preaching again. So off he goes. And he can't stay away from the word resurrection. He keeps saying the word resurrection. And here's what Luke tells us. He says, you know, in the book of Acts, that by the time the day is over, 5,000 people have gotten saved. And that doesn't count the women and the children. <laughs> a lot of people in that day, it's a massive day, 10% authorities. So the authorities say to him, hey, you can't come in here preaching these things. You can't come in here and saying those things because <laughs> they felt a little picked on. So they arrest Peter and John. They throw him in jail for the night. And the next morning, all of these leaders, um, you know, they call him back in and they say, you know, would you please explain yourself? What's this all about? And it's like, Peter, he just can't help himself. So they're going, what? You have a question? Oh, off he goes again. He launches into another sermon. And he starts talking about Jesus being resurrected and being the Son of God. And, and, and then as he concludes his sermon, he, he says something in his final statement to them that really bugs them. I mean, the stuff before bothered them a little bit. But what he says at the end of that statement really bugs them. And i got to say this, it really bugs our society too. This next thing is probably the most inflammatory thing you can say in any public setting anywhere. It makes people angry. They don't want to hear you say this. If you say it, you're narrow, you're a bigot. (laughs) I mean, they do not want to hear this. And they will interrupt you, and they will shout you down, and they will teach you a politically correct way to live among them, and they'll tell you all these things. But this really bugged them. And here's what he says. Acts 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Wow! That is so narrow though, isn't it? Leave that up, okay, for just a minute. That's a good one to leave up. (laughs) I mean, here he is. He's just out of jail. He still smells like jail. He's saying all this stuff. He can't shut up. (sighs) There is no other name under heaven where mankind must be saved. Only 
Jesus. He's saying God has done something miraculous. He's seen, God has done something miraculous. He raised him, and I just can't shut up, and I can't stop telling you about it. He was resurrected. There's no other way. Think about, um, think about that. It's so true today. You can't say the name Jesus. I mean, there was an article, a small, started as a small story among pastors and leaders in our community about a week or so ago. Church, a, a church downtown Olympia named Reality Church wanted to have their church picnic down at Heritage Park, which surrounds Capitol Lake. That's, that's part of the state capital grounds, so the people that you go to for permission to have your picnic, for a large picnic, is the start, State Department of General Administration. I'm not picking on the state here. I'm just going to report the facts. I'll report you decide. <laughs> so, 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 um, so they go and they ask for permission to have their picnic Answer, yes, you can have your barbecue and your picnic. They had also requested permission to baptize people in the lake. Answer, no, you may not baptize in the lake. That story in the last seven or eight days ended up being on the front and center, top half of the fox.com website. And um, it had some legs. It ended up being, um, you know, Jay Sekulow and all these other people got involved, and I don't know where it's going to go. But it's really an argument about the name of Jesus. You can have barbecue chicken. You can, you can play, have sack races. You can do all kinds of things, but don't you dare name Jesus because this is public land. It's like we have become, so as a society, our goal is to never offend and it seems like a logical, reasonable way that we can all just get along. But I'm telling you, that, that strategy, that's human wisdom. That strategy is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, anyway, no other name where mankind must be saved, only Jesus. And did you know that in all of history... There has never been another human being whose name was declared as our way of salvation. Anyway, okay, so Acts, it's time to get in there. Acts 4, starting in verse, verses 13 and 14. Let's just read the word and see where it goes. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. So the Sanhedrin goes into caucus. They're talking about it. What are we going to do with these men, they ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. Everyone in Jerusalem, the city knows this is going on, okay? (laughs) And we cannot deny it. Verse 17, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, stop there for a minute. Spartacus had a PR campaign that intentionally spread the word. Here, the PR PR campaign was to smother the word. To stop them from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak, warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So you can barbecue (laughs) and you can have sack races, just don't name the name of Jesus. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at the name of Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus, quit mentioning the resurrection, stop blaming us for the crucifixion. Keep your mouth shut, and we're just going to let you go. 
But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, for as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know, and they take off, so they're let go, and they go and they find the rest of the 120, and they meet together and they pray. Now, I would love to have been a fly on the wall, and I want to play the imagination game with you again. Let's just assume that that 120 are Americans, okay? <laughs> so here's how they, the, us Americans would take on that meeting. I'm picking on us right now, okay? So I hope you got a thick hide, but if you don't, there's my wife. Talk to her after church, okay? <laughs> or you can email my address is eric at living, or see, <laughs> uh, that other place. Okay, so, so here they go. Um, they, they're so glad Peter and, and, and John are okay because they've already lost Jesus, and now Peter's kind of the lead guy, and they don't want to lose him and John. So they're so glad they're together. So they say, okay, now we've got we to do a couple things here. We gotta, first off, we've got to tone down the rhetoric here a little bit. So we're going to start being a little wiser about the things we say, and um, let's just tone it down. Let's stop, me- let's stop mention- mentioning the resurrection so much because that makes people angry, and you know, maybe we should just not even mention the name Jesus for all. How about if we just say God? Because then they can interpret and God can be whatever they say in their own minds and, um, and use generic. Now, listen, by the way, I'm not accusing the 120 of being um, against Jesus. I'm just saying, you know, how this would be p- handled politically in our day. And also, by the way, you two guys are so important, you know, you can't go anywhere together anymore. It's too important. We can't put all of our eggs in one basket, one of you at a time. And I think we probably need to get ourselves um, a small fleet of tricked out black Escalades and some guys in dark suits with sunglasses and some... Do you get the picture? We would be so um, intent on making sure that um, we were going to be careful. And last but not least, we've got to really tone down the no other name but Jesus because that's too narrow. That's just too narrow. I, I think that's definitely not the guidance the Holy Spirit would have been giving them. Um, okay, so Acts 4, um, picking up in verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now they're going to quote some Old Testament, um, um, some Old Testament scripture that basically predicts that the Messiah would be persecuted and mistreated, okay? Um, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's exactly what happened right here in our city. They're saying to themselves, we watched this scripture be fulfilled. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They, Herod and Pontius Pilate, did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Wow, that's amazing. Pilate and Herod decided what God decided should happen. It's like they didn't believe that things had somehow spiraled out of control. They believed that God had superintended that, those events, including the crucifixion of their friend. Now check out their prayer. Verse 29, Now God... Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Wait a second. Isn't boldness what got us here in the first place? Isn't boldness what got us in trouble with, uh, with these people and these leaders? You know, we've got boldness covered, Lord. You know, I mean, they've already got... I'm, I'm looking at them and saying, they, they got it covered. Why are they asking for more boldness? And I, I think the reason <laughs> that they asked for it in part was so that it could be fact and so that the Holy Spirit could record it in Scripture so that today we could read it. 
Because I have to ask you know, myself the question, and I'd ask you to ask yourself the question. When was the last time you asked the Lord for boldness? <laughs> when did you last ask the Lord to enable you to speak words that would have the power to save? And I'm not talking about being weird here. I'm, uh, you know, why did Christianity make its way to the 21st century? Because these guys pray for boldness. That's the answer to the question. Why are we still talking about Jesus? So they go on, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do we pray for that? You know, I mean, to some of us, that might sound like, well, that's what we do in church. We pray for people in church. But I, that's not what this is asking about. This is about like you saying, Lord, stretch out your hand through me out there in the secular community. Amen. Among my unchurched friends. In fact, Lord, grant me boldness among my friends who have been burned in church. Grant me boldness among my friends. I got some really smart friends, and every time this comes up, they start reeling off these quotes from people I've never heard of, and intellectually, I can't keep up with the argument. God, I'm depending on you (laughs) to put something in there that will penetrate past all of that human wisdom and get in where it counts. God, give me that kind of boldness. Fill me with power and boldness to look them lovingly in the eyes. And tell them the gospel truth. Um, when, when we were real young Christians, um, we were signing up to be altar workers at the Billy Graham crusade at the Tacoma Dome. No, the King Dome. Remember that? Any of you remember that? <laughs> it was a long time ago. You know, they were, it was the first event in the King Dome. And so that's, you know, a long time ago. It's used up and torn down now. It's that long ago. Billy Graham was the first guy there and it would never have had that many people in it again. Anyway, so we went through all the training, Lisa and I did. And what you, so you learned how to lead someone to the Lord. And there's a sequence of scriptures. And it's really good stuff. So I, I went home and decided to practice on my mom. Do you remember that, Mom? You don't? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, though. Um, I have in my collection of Bibles at home, um, one of my Bibles, there's a note that you wrote to me. And uh, you wrote it in there right after that time. And so I, I went through this role-playing with my mother to lead her to the Lord. Obviously, she was a Christian at that point. And um, the note basically said to me something that I was shocked to read. She said, there was a presence and anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you when you were leading me, leading me to the Lord. There was a power that was there that was not of my doing, there was something of an anointing and a presence of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always points the way to Jesus. And I was really bold at the kitchen table inside my nice safe house with my already saved mother. <laughs> so I need, I, I, need, I need that kind of boldness in other places. I need that kind of boldness when I'm at the restaurant and the waitress and the Spirit says, tell her. Oh, really, God? She might spit in my hamburger if I she doesn't like what I have to say. <laughs> oh, that's disgusting, isn't it? They don't really do that, I'm sure. <laughs> I need to pray for boldness. I know you do, too. I'm, some of you are already bold, but 
I, I just need more boldness. And you know, the miracles that we read about in the word, they weren't for the sake of the people who were healed alone. They were there to produce a sign for people. They were asking to be able to go out into the community to demonstrate the power of God, not for their sake, but for the sake of their community. Can you imagine what would happen if Christians began to regularly pray that prayer, Lord, give me boldness with my friends so that I could see opportunities, so that I would be sensitive, and then I'll just do what you suggest, Lord, and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. You know, we're never held accountable by the Lord to get anybody saved. We're only held accountable for obedience to his spirit. Imagine what can happen in their lives, the good things that can happen in their lives if, if we become. Here's what will happen. You'll see more opportunities if you pray that prayer. And God will do things that he would never have done, but he'll do them through you. So here's what happened to them. Acts 4, verses 31 and 32. After they prayed, and we're about to the end here. I'll get you out the door in the next few minutes. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Suddenly, there was this huge outbreak of generosity. Generosity was a great byproduct. It's the sign that I want us, I want us to look for. If we are outward-hearted, generosity will be the byproduct. I want us to be a church that prays big prayers. And then those prayers will be an indication of, I believe, where our heart is. We ask for not only for ourselves, but we ask for boldness and we move outward. I want you to add to your prayers. I'm asking you to, to, pray, to add to your prayers. God, make me bolder. God, stretch out your hands and do things in my life that would cause people around me to notice you. God will answer that prayer if you're willing. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to close this with, um, close our time together with, we're going to read something out loud together, okay? But I'm going to ask you to read this as, a, as if it was a prayer. And we'll just read it through twice. I'll kind of real quick prayer to close, and then we're dismissed. We're going to go out the door, okay? So that's how it's going to work. But here's the deal. If you're not a Christian, you get a pass. You can do this if you want, but I don't feel like I'm going to push any of you. But if you're a Christian, you really need to play. Okay? If you're a Christian, you really need to play. There's a reason for that. You and I are responsible as Christians to pass off a healthy church to our next generation. We're responsible to do that. So um, we're going to read this. Would you all stand to your feet? And I'll lead you. So we're just going to read through this two times together, okay? Let's read. Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Okay? We do that one more time. Okay? This is, read it like a prayer. I'm leading you there. We need to lead this, read this like a prayer. Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Lord, so be it. Lord, we ask God you to fill this, fill our hearts, Lord, with your word and anointing. Bless us, God, to be vessels used by you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Okay, God bless you all. Make sure you greet a couple people as you go. There's coffee and cookies next door. See you next week.